Well, this morning we wanted to uh, take a, a break from Romans, and this, this was actually planned a few months ago. Uh, and so we said we wanted to do this before we get into the Christmas season. So we'll pick up Romans in the new year. Uh, but we wanted to do a little bit of a short series on the family. Uh, and it's, you know, Focus on the Family is a good name for it. I've stolen it from somewhere else. There's another ministry called Focus on the Family. I should have done, should have given credit for that. Uh, but we want to focus on the family for the next three weeks and just look at some matters to do with the family unit. Uh, and we thought it would be uh, uh, important because there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, about what a family unit is. It's interesting because in India, we pride ourselves on our family values. We feel we are the best in the world. And I think in many ways, we're pretty good at it, right? Compared to some of the other countries, we've got some strong uh, family bonds and relationships. But that doesn't mean that they're perfect. And it doesn't mean that it is right every way that we do it in India. What we want as believers is, to be in, is not to be Indian in our family values, but to be biblical in our family values. That's what we want to be. Neither do we want to be Western in our family values. We want to be biblical in our family values. And so we need to get back to the Bible to understand what the family unit is all about. And so this morning we're going to look at marriage. Many of you are married here, so you'll feel yay. Some of you are not married here. That's okay. You will hopefully be one day. And so this is good for you to think about and prepare yourself for. And then there are those that are not thinking about marriage. It's still important for you because marriage is to be held in honor. That's what the scriptures say. And so we want to treat it with that kind of respect and honor with which God has created it. And so we'll do that this morning. Next week, we're going to look at parents and children. And then the third week, so it's just three weeks, we're going to look at all the other relationships. Grandparents, in-laws, that should be fun, isn't it? Right? We'll talk about some of those as well, uh, not the week, the week after the next one. So uh, this morning, we're going to talk about marriage. Now, some of the things I, I'm going to say to you are probably things that you're familiar with, and that's okay. Uh, it's still important for us, I think, to go over them, uh, to be refresh in our thinking from scripture about them and so uh, even as we look at it you know uh, we want to let it be a refresher if you're familiar with these things um, for some of us for, for some of what i'm going to say in fact all of what i'm going to say is going to sound very idealistic as well my goodness this is such a lofty high standard for marriage because the bible is saying these things uh, and that's that's true it is and what we want to say as a disclaimer is that no marriage lives up to this lofty ideal. None of the marriages do. You know, every marriage has trouble. Every marriage has difficulty and conflict and misunderstanding. And so as we listen to what scripture has to say about marriage, we want to take it with a pinch of salt. Is that okay to use that? To be able to say, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is where I am in my relationship. And it's good to have the ideal because it helps me work towards something rather than to have, you know, a, sort of a relative understanding of what marriage is. To have an ideal is important. It gives us direction in our marriages. And so that's what we want to keep in mind as we look at it this morning. So you ready to go? If you're taking notes uh, on your phone or on, on a notebook, you can... Uh, start writing with us. So I've got five things. Oh, you started already. Alright, I've got five things that I want to share with you about marriage from the scriptures this morning. Number one, marriage was instituted by God. Marriage 
was instituted by God. So turn in your Bibles and I encourage you to, if you've got a Bible, look into your Bibles. And if, if not, it's on the screen. And there's a few uh, passages that we're going to look at, uh, beginning with Genesis that was read uh, for us. Now, it sounds straightforward, but it is vitally important because this fundamental truth about marriage that God instituted it impacts the way we, we view marriage and the way we define marriage. It's really, really important. Unlike cooperatives or societies or trusts which are man-made, marriage as an institution, to use that word, was made by God, was created by God. And while the rules and structures of organizations and societies, DBF is a society, you know, in its society rules, all those things can change over time. When it comes to marriage, it remains fundamentally the same as God created it to be in the beginning. It's not one of those things that should change or ought to change, even though there's tremendous pressure on it to change. So let's look at this first uh, passage that speaks of God, of the divine origin of marriage, of God's creation of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to read verse 18 uh, and then verse 21 to 25. All right, here's what he says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Notice over there that God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want you to notice over here right off the bat is that marriage is often referred to as a creation ordinance. When God created the heavens and the earth, he also created marriage. Pretty spectacular if you think about it, right? Right in the beginning, before the fall, marriage was one of the things that God created. It's not something that emerged after the fall as a social construct, which some people think, you know, society came up years and years ago of ways to sort of manage things. And so they came up with this idea of family. No, no, no. It was a pre-fall design of God that God created marriage. And that's something special to observe about marriage. But I want you to notice also in these verses that God said <coughs> that God takes the initiative over here. First of all, he says it's not good for man to be alone. God says that. He takes the initiative. And then it is God who causes the man to fall asleep. And it is God who takes the rib out of the man's side and out of that creates the woman. And it is God who brings the woman to the man. God takes the initiative in creating marriage as it is, as it is, as, as it is. Because it is like what we have today, marriage. God takes the initiative. He takes the priority in doing that. That's why in a marriage service, you know, we have the, the groom standing up in the front and the father of the bride brings the bride. That's an enactment of this. 
God bringing the woman to the man. It's not just a, a nice cultural thing with beautiful music playing. It's a reenactment of something beautiful that is taking place when God created marriage. Now your marriage was put together by God himself. Was put together by God himself. Now some of you may wonder, how could that be? You have no idea what my spouse is like, right? For you to say something like that. You don't know how difficult my marriage is. Now, the reason why marriages are difficult, and we'll say something a little bit at the end as well about this, is because of the fall, not because of creation. It's because of the fall. It's because of Adam and Eve sinned against God, and that brought a breakdown in their relationship with God. It brought a, brought a breakdown in their relationship with creation. He says, when you work the ground, it's going to be painful toil for you. And it brought a breakdown in their relationship with one another as husband and wife. And it's interesting that God says to the woman in Genesis chapter 3, when he's, you know, they, he's, he's confronting them for their sin, he says something interesting in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the second part of it. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that desire over here is not a good desire like you, I'm longing for my husband. No, no, it's actually a desire to control and dominate the husband. And the husband is going to dominate you. That's the idea of it. And the same phrase is used in Genesis 4, 7. And I put that verse up there because God is speaking to Cain and he talks about sin. And he says, sin desires to have you, but you must dominate. It's the same phraseology, so to speak, the same idea. And that's what's going on in the fall over here, that the, the woman desires to dominate the man. The man dominates the woman. This eternal sort of conflict that seems to be taking place between man and woman. So all the trouble in marriage today is because of sin. It's because you have two sinful individuals who are trying to make things work, who are trying to get along and they have a lot of difficulty with that. That's because of the fall, not because of marriage itself, because God created marriage. God's original design for marriage was good and beautiful. And you and I have got to work on that in our marriages rather than rage against our spouse. Got to work on it. And one of the implications of this truth that God is the one who designed marriage, who created the institution of marriage, is that marriage is holy. It's holy. And it ought not to be trifled with. That's why when we get married, you know, the, the pastor will say to you that you should be entering into this uh, not lightly or unadvisedly. You should have thought about it. You should be careful. You should have sought wisdom. You should have prayed before you enter into marriage because it is a holy thing. And God will hold us accountable for how we treat our spouse in marriage. Do we value our spouse? Do we nurture them in a God-given way? Of course, you can have jokes and laugh about it. You know, men and women, we have these jokes about marriage. That's fine. No problem. But fundamentally, fundamentally, marriage is a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing because God created it. He instituted it. 
Alright, so that's the first one. God instituted marriage. The second truth about marriage is that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. One man and one woman for life. Now that sounds like a deeper pit we're digging ourselves into, right? <gasps> one man and one woman for life. What are you talking about? That sounds so old and archaic. And sadly, we live in a time that something like this needs to be emphasized. It needs to be spelled out in that sense. It might have seemed obvious, you know, 20, 30 years ago, yeah, yeah, one man, one woman for life. But a lot has changed in the cultural landscape over the last three, four decades or so, when there's a lot of uh, sort of a redefinition of what marriage is. Nowadays, the world seeks to redefine marriage as being between two individuals who can be of the same sex as well if they love each other. And so in the US in 2011, they passed the Marriage Equality Act, which gave equal rights to same-sex couples that heterosexual couples had in marriage. Right? So they, they put them on the same level. Basically, they said both are marriage, so to speak. And it was a redefinition of marriage. And of course, what happens in the US has ramifications around the world. It affects everything that goes on in the world. Now, while this, you know, the same-sex relationships might be permissible in the world, a redefinition of marriage is a problem. It's a problem because it goes against scripture and it has a tremendous bearing on society as well and on children as well. And we don't have time to get into all of that. Maybe we'll take that up in another sermon. But, you know, definitely changing the definition of marriage has significant implications for society as well. Now, clearly in the scriptures, marriage is defined as the union between one man and one woman. In the portion that we just read in Genesis chapter 2, look at the commentary. So, you know, there's a description of what takes place and then you have Moses' commentary on that and the scripture's commentary on that in Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the man and the woman. The two shall become one flesh. In Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about this uh, with the, the, the Pharisees who question him about marriage, he says the same thing. He answered in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, not male and male, not female and female, male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Marriage is between the husband and the wife, between the male and the female, two becoming one. Two becoming one. Not multiple spouses, not polygamy. And by the way, polygamy isn't a major issue in the Christian community. But it is in India permissible in the Muslim community and in the Middle East and other Southeast Asian countries that are, are Muslim countries in that sense. Polygamy is practiced. It is allowed uh, in Russia, not criminalized, not legal, but not criminalized in Russia. But in most of the Western Hemisphere, it's, it's not practiced widely or not allowed even. It's illegal in that sense in those countries. And so we might sort of think, you know what, it's not a big issue for Christians. 
polygamy. But you know what is the big issue for Christians? Adultery. Adultery. We go outside of marriage, not in a legal way where you know we're seeking polygamous relationships, but we go outside of marriage in other ways. And that's a big issue amongst Christians. We're not immune to that. The matter of one man and one woman becomes, becomes important in dealing with wandering hearts, isn't it? Let me read a few words from the Proverbs that I read this week, which I came across, you know, just in my reading of the Proverbs. Wisdom <coughs> is counseling a man in regard to remaining faithful to the wife of his youth. And so this Lady Wisdom is bringing this counsel to this young man who is sort of easily led astray, going off into the house of the adulteress, so to speak. And by the way, this goes both ways, men or women, alright? Uh, and here's what uh, the proverb says, Proverbs 5, 3 and 4. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. In other words, it looks beautiful and enticing and inviting, like honey. But in the end, it's death itself. Proverbs 5, 15 to 18, here's what he says. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? That's a question. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Don't go around outside your marriage relationship. Drink from your own cistern. Enjoy what you have for yourself, man or woman, in marriage. Don't go outside of it. Verse, uh, Proverbs 5, 20 to 21. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son? with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. Good questions for us to think about. And then in chapter 9 of Proverbs, another warning, he says over here, stolen water is sweet. It is, isn't it? Feels good. There's something enticing about what is secretive, what is stolen. That's what makes it uh, so pleasant, if you like, or desirable. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Leads to death. You know, there's a strict legal definition of adultery, which is sex outside of marriage. But a more general definition of adultery or one that's actually more accurate comes from the words of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. And if we're honest, I don't think any of us, any of us can claim to be without sin in this. We look at a woman or we look at a man with lustful intent, we've committed adultery in our heart. That's staggering to think about the level of purity that Christ calls us to in marriage. It's staggering. And so many people 
get into non-physical relationships and they think it's fine. It's just a non-physical relationship. And it's an emotional one where you're stuck up. You have to connect with that person. You can't live without that person. You want to you get a message from them. You want to chat with them. You want to talk to them. You want to see them once in a while. Or we get into, you know, just, just light-hearted sort of flirtatious relationships at work. Dangerous, isn't it? And then some, you know, some watch pornography quietly. Stolen water is sweet. And even explicit material on television. Don't tell me it doesn't affect your mind and heart. Not just affect, it doesn't, don't tell me it doesn't infect your mind and your heart. And what you end up doing, think about this for a moment. What you end up doing when you play around with these things in a, in a make-believe world, so to speak, is you end up bringing those things into your marriage relationship. And you put inordinate expectations on your spouse that they can never live up to. Because that's a dream world out there. And it is going to break your marriage. It's going to break it. Listen to what Proverbs again says. Wonderful wisdom in this. In fact, read Proverbs 5, 6, 7, 9. All of these dealing with this particular issue. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No, you can't. It's dangerous to play with fire. It will eventually consume you. It's the little things that lead to big things. Little things that you play with eventually engulfs you. You see, marriage is only between you and your spouse for life. Not for anybody else. Whether real, physical, or emotional, or anything else. Now I added that last bit over there, for life, right? One, one man, one woman for life. Because divorce and remarriage is not in the will of God. You know, when, in Matthew 19, when they asked Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, they say, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds in Matthew 19, right? He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. These are part of marriage vows. Whenever a, a marriage is solemnized in a church, these are the things that are said. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Not any man outside the marriage and not the couple in the marriage. Let them not separate the marriage relationship. And then, you know, there's a, there's a question that's, that's followed up. They say, why then did Moses permit divorce? And the Lord says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Divorce was, was given because of the hardness of hearts to best manage a fallen world so to speak and the fallen human heart but that's not God's design in the first place so it's not in the will of God for you to pursue divorce or remarriage it's not it's not and Jesus says this he says because of your hardness of heart Moses allow you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery 
That's a very, very strong word. In fact, the, the disciples, the Pharisees, are, they, they're shocked by that. They said, who should consider getting married? It's better to not get married then. That's their response to what Jesus has said. Now, the whole discussion on divorce and remarriage is for another sermon. And I know this, I've said that already about something else. But there's a lot in this that we have to cover. And so we'll have to leave that. And I actually have preached on this before. You know, a few years ago uh, as well, and maybe more recently, I can't remember, but I can share those with you if you want to listen to them uh, on this particular subject of divorce and remarriage. But we leave it there for now. And let's move to the third truth about marriage. Marriage is between two equal partners. Marriage is between two equal partners. You know, there's a great cultural misconception about marriage where men are seen to be more important than women. You agree with that in India, right? Men are more important. Of course we are. I tease my family about this, by the way, once in a while, just to have them on. I know it's not true, but you know what it is, right? And so it's a cultural thing. You know, men are more important than women. Or that marriage is fundamentally about men and that women are simply there to serve them or to keep them happy. Or, to, or that women are simply the object of a man's desire, so to speak. And so that's one side of the cultural landscape. But that's not the only side. There is another side as well that has emerged forcefully in the last 50 years or so. Feminism. And the most extreme form of feminism, uh, you know, sees men as inferior to women. Because women rule the world. Just the other day, I heard a statement, you know, women are the powerhouse of the world. <laughs> Not from Brother Mahesh, but anyway. <laughs> you know, women are the powerhouse of the world. It was funny because they were guards standing at the gate to guard the place where the women were inside, you know. Um, or a more humorous one, which I read uh, on the internet, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Think about that. A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. In other words, fish don't need bicycles and women don't need men. Get it? Yes. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea over there, said by another feminist somewhere. Basically, women don't need men. Now, both of these what I mentioned first about men thinking that they're the center of the universe or women thinking that they're superior to men are contrary to God's design for man and woman in community and man and woman in marriage. They're contrary to God's design. In society, both men and women are created to be dependent on each other. That's how it functions well when it works like that. Much more so in marriage. We do need each other. And even more fundamentally, marriage is between, like I said before, two equal partners. That's the point over here. Two equal partners. Listen to what the Lord says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He says over here, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing um, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And I want you to notice over here that both men and women are equally image bearers of God. 
the essential worth and the value of the man and the woman is the same before God. There's no variation whatsoever. Let us make man in our image. And he created them male and female in the image of God. Let me take you to a passage in the, in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.7. This is a little controversial one, right? But it's a good one. Peter writes, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Ooh, nobody likes that, right? And then he says, listen to this. See, then he says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Since they are heirs with you, and some translations use joint heirs with you, equal heirs with you of life, the grace of life. No variation whatsoever. Now, just on a quick note on that weaker vessel thing over here. The word vessel is also used in 1 Thessalonians 4.4. I don't think I have it up here. Up here, but it's first lesson 4:4, where it speaks of the control of your vessel, your body, your body. And generally speaking, women are smaller than men, you know, in their body, in their physical structure, in their physical makeup. They are generally weaker than men physically. Now I know some of you will argue that you'll say you don't know what pain we went through. You know, when we had our children, and, and it's probably true. I think Sharon has a greater pain threshold than I do. I jump at little things, you know, but she has a greater pain threshold. But generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. Women, And I think that's what Peter is getting at over here. Protect them. Honor them. Don't abuse them. So much of rape and abuse is from men to women, not the other way around. So much of it is because men are physically more powerful. And he says, don't do that. And I say to you, in your marriage as well, don't do that with your spouse. Never raise your hand on your spouse. Doesn't matter what the culture says. Do not raise your hand on your spouse. Not even once. Don't raise your hand on your spouse. You have no right to do that. Never push your spouse down. Never, as a man, demand things from your spouse using your physical presence to dominate them. Never do that. God takes that dead serious if you do that. That's why he says in Peter, he says, treat them with honor as the weaker vessel so that your prayers to God may not be hindered. God will listen to you if you treat your wife with honor and with dignity. Never physically dominating them. Don't do that. Because they are joint heirs there's no inequality here. Now in society, your worth and value is determined by what you do or your function in society, right? It's not just in marriage, but it works its way into marriage in that sense. So engineers and doctors are more valuable than the garbage collector or the sweeper because they're engineers and doctors. You know, you've seen those headlines in the newspaper. Five people died in an accident, including one engineer. What happened to the other four people? Right? Suddenly, and we do this without even thinking about it. Our culture and our society is like this. We think like that. Adults are more important than children. Young people are more necessary than old people. 
And so we are the ones who feed that in the subtle ways that we think and speak more highly of certain people because of their profession or their qualifications. How much we make of people who have great qualifications, how little we make of people who don't have those qualifications. I, we were at, at, at Hannah's orientation yesterday in, in JMC College, you know, it's a girls college and, and there was so much of talk of the alumni of the college. Priyanka Gandhi, you know, and some judge somewhere and someone who's a politician here and someone, all these great people. But what about the hundreds and the thousands of women who have graduated that college and are mums at home raising their families quietly? What's, what's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? Why is that any less than all of these great things? We do this. We do this. When we speak of our children, we elevate certain professions over the others. We give value and worth to people based on what they have accomplished. But that's not where value and worth lies. We are all equally image, better, image bearers of God. We have the same worth and value before God. And you and I as Christians have to be setting the tone in that. In society and in marriage. And in marriage, you have different functions for men and women. That has nothing to do with inequality or equality. It's just different. And we end up creating that in a marriage as well. All right, a couple more and we're done. All right, I know I've gone way over time. Are you okay with that? Yeah, just really quick. All right, we'll do this. Number four, marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. And this comes out of the previous point because it's a misconception uh, that's born out of the previous point. And the, and the interesting thing about the language that God uses uh, when he speaks in Genesis 1.26 is a language that speaks of the responsibility of both the man and the woman. Look at what he says. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he's using the man Adama as man and woman. And let them, see that change in the pronoun? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every creeping thing and so on and so forth. Come down with me to verse 28 and he says, And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership. It's not just about the husband saying, I'm going here, you better come with me. No, discuss it together. Figure it out together. That's how marriage should work. You do things together. You're a partner in this. You raise your children together. You have conversations about your finances together. So much of, of marriage is, you know, we've, we've sort of reduced it to marriage is about sex and everything else is my business. I have my own friends. I have my own work. I have my own bank account. You have no access to that. But that's not marriage. Biblical marriage, that's a live-in relationship. Where it's friends with benefits sort of a thing, right? Marriage is about sharing absolutely everything. It's not easy, but it's about that. It's about doing things together. It's about partnership. That's what marriage is. And God says very clearly, let them have dominion. Let God bless them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Together we do this. Marriage is a partnership. 
And you might divide responsibility. Some of you might, one of you might take care of this, one of you might take care of that. Yes, that's fine. Ultimately, you do things together. You build your marriage together. Let's come to the fifth one. Marriage is a union. Marriage is a union. Here's what he says in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. You know this earthly union is deep and even mysterious in that sense. But the man and the woman or the husband and the wife are one flesh. Listen to these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Here's what he writes. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice that the husband and the wife belong to each other. There's a one flesh union. And your body belongs to him and his body belongs to you in marriage. There's nothing like this in the world. Nothing like it. Scripture is incredibly profound on this. And what's sad is that sometimes spouses deprive each other of sex because they want to get back at their partner. That's not it. You don't own your own body. Your spouse owns it in that sense that's the way it should be jesus says in matthew 19 6 so they are no longer two but one flesh one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate one more verse in malachi chapter 2 verse 15 he says did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one god seeking godly offspring so guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God has made the husband and the wife one in marriage. One. And it speaks to partnership. It speaks to sexual intimacy and union. But it also speaks to a union and a unity in everything else. In partnership. In everything else. To work things out together because you are one. You are one. And you're to work together as one. You're to defend your spouse and not put them down in front of others. Don't do that. Don't gossip about your spouse behind their back. It destroys their credibility, harms your marriage. Seek to build on that unity. Five truths about marriage. Marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is between two equal partners. Marriage is a partnership and marriage is a union. And there's a lot of overlap between these, but I hope it's been helpful and instructive for you so that we can build biblical marriages. And I want to say again, like I said in the beginning, all of this sounds up in the clouds, idealistic. I can never, never accomplish that. That's true. Every marriage is difficult. 
every marriage. And if people are lying to you if they're saying that their marriage is without any pain and without any difficulty and heartbreak and times of great distress even. But it's good to have an ideal, a biblical design for it so that we can work towards it. And I want to say to you, if any of you are struggling in your marriage, get help. Speak to a brother or sister who is trustworthy in the congregation that you feel you can speak to. Speak to the elders and get help for your marriage. So much can be helped with just some conversations. And I tell you from experience that we've had for our own selves, but also for others that we have helped over the years. So much can be done just by opening up to sort out those issues in marriage. Let me give you a moment to quiet in your hearts in prayer. And I'm going to give you a moment to pray now for your spouse. For those of you who are married, pray for your spouse. For those of you who are unmarried, pray for whoever God has purposed for you, wherever they are. You don't know where they are, but just pray for them. And say, Lord, prepare me, help me to be the right kind of person for my spouse. Help me to have this biblical ideal before me and with your help to work towards it in faith and in obedience to your word. Help me, Lord.